creativity in the pursuit of sustainability is our topic. So what does that mean? That means we are going to be talking about thinking creatively about our businesses, either finding efficiencies, diversifying our revenue streams, and really um, just getting you to think a little bit different. So the panelists who we'll introduce in a moment each have a story. And a story that resonates with that topic, it really is meant to spark some creative thinking within your own senior leadership teams and within your own organizations. Uh, I'm just going to briefly introduce who the panelists are, and then I'm going to ask each of them just to give you some scope of the programs, what their business is, and the size, just so you have an idea of that. Um, but first, we have David Shapiro, not Shapiro. He likes to be different. He's Shapiro. Um, he's with the uh, National Mentoring Partnership. And then we have Troy uh, Siebels, who's the CEO of uh, the Hanover Theater. Uh, Tim Barrett, CFO of Pine Street Inn, and Jennifer Van Campen of the Metro West Collaborative. David, why don't you uh, start us off just by a little brief of this, the agency, the programs, and the size. Sure. Um, well, it's a great privilege to be with you all. Um, our CFAO, Beth Tallarico, always comes back every year uh, even more afraid and even more empowered by this conference, um, which is part of what makes our partnership work um, in terms of learning from all of you and, and learning from AF. You know, just to give the, the high-level propaganda on mentors, so uh, we were founded uh, 27 years ago basically by people who were on the board of Big Brothers Big Sisters of America who said we have a vertical but not a category for mentoring. So we have one organization that's doing a great job and alone at that point was probably you know, who, which child is in need of a mentor is a debate we could have for the rest of the month. Uh, but we're meeting, you know, maybe two, three percent of the need in this country. And so they set aside, they said, you know, their sights on kind of building a field and a movement around youth mentoring in this country to close the mentoring gap. And you can just think about looking around you both at Mass Mentoring, which is our state affiliate, Mass Mentoring Partnership, as well as the thousands of mentoring programs around the country. We've gotten to about four and a half million kids in mentoring relationships in America up from a couple hundred thousand. So that's what our organization looks like. Thanks. Troy? Uh, who's been to the Hanover Theater in Worcester? <laughs> awesome. Right. Thank you, first of all. Thank you for being there. So we are um, we're a 2300 seat performing arts center designed by the same man who designed the Boston Opera House that built in uh, 1926 in Worcester, 27 in Boston. Very similar. <clears throat> we underwent a historic restoration 10 years ago, uh, just a couple years after the Boston Theater. It really, we've kind of a mirror in some ways. Uh, since then, we bring in Broadway touring shows. We bring in concerts and comedy, everything from Aretha Franklin to Jerry Seinfeld to the Long Island Medium to uh, <laughs> all, all manner of things. Um, and then uh, we are very outward facing. We, are, we believe very strongly in the power of partnerships and in collaboration. Uh, so, you know, of the things that we talked about, Carla, with relationship to today, we talked about our partnership with the city, whereby we're developing a pedestrian plaza in Carroll Square in front of the theater and our role in that and programming that and creating a destination space in the theater district in Worcester beyond the people who are able to buy a ticket and come to a show. We also um, 
have, uh, we opened our Hanover Conservatory for the Performing Arts last year. We have about 275 students now that attend uh, up to six days a week in classes in theater, music, dance, and technical theater. Uh, and that's become a big part of what we do and it's grown a lot and it, it shows uh, signs yeah. that it's gonna grow a lot over the next couple of years. Great. Tim? I think everybody knows the Pine Street Inn, but <laughs> size and... Sure, uh, so the finance officer for the uh, Pine Street Inn. Um, Pine Street Inn is a $50 million organization. Um, we serve homeless men and women, formerly homeless men and women, and primarily the greater Boston area. We do extend beyond uh, Boston. Um, on a daily basis, we serve about 2,000 people. Um, most people know us because of our shelters. Uh, we have about 800 shelter beds for both men and women. Um, we actually also have 1,000 units of supportive housing um, uh, where we've basically taken people out of housing. And these are people that have significant issues, so they need uh, support services to remain housed. Mm -hmm. um, uh, let's see, uh, on an annual basis, we'll serve about 7,000 people for our shelters. Uh, not everyone, uh, a lot of people, um, uh, homelessness is episodic, it's, it's short term and all. Um, but there is a significant issue where on, an an, on a daily basis is about 2,000 people. This is individuals, not families, who are homeless on the streets of Boston. Uh, so our goal is to end their homelessness, and uh, we've done a lot of work around uh, different financial st streams, uh, revenue streams, as well as around collaboration with other partners to make that happen. Um, we'll house hopefully 1,000 people this year, not all in our housing. And for those 1,000 people that we're in our, in our housing, uh, we have a 90% retention rate. Um, so um, uh, that's, that's Pine Street. Great. Jennifer. All right. Our goal um, is to help the 28 communities, give or take, in the Metro West region reach their 10% affordable housing goal under Chapter 40B. And if we were successful, we would create just about 5,000 new units of affordable housing. So we figure at a rate of about uh, Six a year. Um, we have a hundred thousand years uh, to go. <laughs> Thank you. It just gives people perspective. We have a lot of people in here from different size organizations, um, from startup to very large. So it's helpful to know. Um, we're going to start with social enterprise because I think that's always interesting to people to think about uh, what they could do um, in that arena. And, and social enterprise meaning doing something that is um, not necessarily in your mission, or it could be, but it's really entered into for um, profit. And um, so I would like Tim to talk about social enterprise. And you have entered, you, you get really creative with this because you started a program that didn't work and you ended, mm -hmm. and you have one that's successful. So I thought maybe you could talk about both on the one that didn't go forward, why, what did you learn? And then on the one that is thriving and growing, you know, what were the differences between that and then what led you to getting into that business? Sure. So, so one thing that's um, uh, critical for Pine Street End, though we're in the, you know, our business is to end homelessness and house people. Um, one of the ways of doing that is just for providing people job training to give them skills. So, um, when they get into housing, they can have some income and keep themselves housed. 
So for years, we've done job training programs or workforce development. Uh, during the 2000s, uh, government started to pull back, at least in our area, from that. And we did a bit of reflection and saying, geez, this is really a problem. How are we going to be able to sustain this mission? We kind of looked through the organization, and I have to be honest, it's completely serendipitous. Someone <laughs> called us and said, our chef left. We need meals for the 50 people in our program. I know you have a kitchen, and you make lots of meals on a daily basis for the men and women in your shelters. Would you mind making them for us? And we said, OK, we'll do that. And that is the beginning of what's now called iCater, our $2.5 million um, uh, social enterprise. Um, so iCater, one of the things, Pine Street, okay, so when you think of people in the shelter, what are they looking for? They're, they're looking for a place to put their head, a bed. Um, they're, they're, they're looking for um, food. Many of them come in and their hung, hunger goes with the homelessness and all. Um, and, and then other, other things. Um, and our facilities are large and then they're industrial and they need to be kept clean and all. Um, so we started reflecting on, geez, what are we good at? And we realized, geez, we're really good at food. We make 2,500 meals on a daily basis now. Mm. So we're producing a lot of meals like colleges and universities and, and hospitals do. And we said, how could we, how could we leverage that and make that into a business? And we, we started looking out there and, and you know, I, I'm not sure who's in the crowd here, but maybe some of you are iCater customers and maybe you want to become an iCater customer. And I'd be happy to talk to you about that. Feel good about yeah. paying that catering bill. <laughs> yes. Um, but we, we started to realize we had a competency in being able to deliver family-style meals. So what I mean by family-style meals are the ones that are in bins and, you know, you, you go mac and cheese, um, um, you know, different things kind of, you know, that, that, that you can get many portion sizes out of. And um, we started looking around and asking some of our um, other, other organizations mm. that we worked with and said, hey, you know, would you be interested in this? And most of them at first said, no, 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 we have people on our staff, why would we want to do that? Um, uh, and then over time, started to lead to some, usually oftentimes when the chef left, or they realized that they had case managers that were cooking that really didn't know how to cook, or they needed to be doing something else. And we started to build a core and that was really a key part of uh, iCater was first being able to build a core so we had something that we could build upon. We basically took any advantage we could off of any, co um, any university that wanted to come in and do some consulting or a new sector, community uh, wealth ventures or whatever to help us create a business plan. And that kind of put us in the direction of uh, um, you know, starting iCater. I think now that you know we just served our five millionth meal as an organization in January, um, uh, we've become much more business kind of looking at this. And and um, Carlo is going to ask about you know how do you grow your sales and all. We've become very targeted and kind of using what you would expect a um, you know you know an organization selling a product to do because that in essence is what we're doing. And um, you know really having a prospect list, we have a person that's a marketing person on our staff and trying to develop that business there. Um, because you, you are in the corporate sector, not just yeah. for other nonprofits, and it's hard yep. to break in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we also did start a catering business, too, because uh, for what we learned is from 
from this is, is though family style meals, it's a um, f smaller amount of customers, higher volume. We also learned that there's also a need for catering out there too. So it, both um, providing a great service there as well as another way to expand our, our network, frankly, out there to get connected mm. with more people that have introduced us to more people that have led to more prospects and more customers and all. So that's a successful venture. Right. Um, just briefly, Carla mentioned, we, we had an unsuccessful venture, um, Boston Handiworks. So another thing when you run industrial-sized buildings that are shelters is you, you, all, you have to provide a lot of food, but you also have to do a lot of housekeeping and facilities right. and maintenance and take care of the facilities. And we said, how, how might we be able to um, leverage off of this also because that was their other training program too um, is, is how to give formerly homeless men and women skills and how to you know you know make beds and you know clean clean and all of that so we created Boston Handiworks about about 10 years ago or so and um, when we first introduced it, we started to realize that there were some challenges with it. And that is, is when you prepare food, it's in one kitchen. So the people that are in the kitchen that are trainees are working alongside our own employees mm. and the supervisors are there. Um, when you do housekeeping, it's different. You're oftentimes off on other sites and now unless you have a, a force where you have many trainees there, you have to usually have a supervisor to overlook them. So the cost model became very different there. The, the other thing I mentioned, you know, with, with uh, food, oftentimes people do, they don't have a chef or they have a direct care staff person uh, doing the food. Most places don't have the direct care staff as someone doing the housekeeping. So they, they and they have to take care of the building, you know, from yeah. a building code standpoint. So we started to realize different things. Uh, were going on there. So then we tried to get into, and this is a no-no, but what we said is, is, well, why don't we expand and we make boards? We made these beautiful boards, many of you might have seen them and all, mm. and got into woodworking because that's another area where we could do skills and we can maybe market that product out there. The big no-no is, is what in the world does our mission have to do with making woodworking boards? <laughs> so what, you know, the kind of the joke at the end came about it, and, and the people that, we, we, we run on passion, and, and, and the people that did this were extremely passionate about it but really the joke came uh, down to is for every dollar we earned in a board we spent two dollars to make it and uh, uh, about three four years ago we decided that uh, it was time to put Boston Handiworks aside and um, uh, frankly well, it, it was a good decision yeah I mean though I will say that there there are some organizations that have gotten into businesses that are outside their mission and pay the tax on the income that they make. <laughs> so if you can make money at it, I, you know, why not, I guess. Sure. Um, if you have the resources to mm -hmm. do it. Um, they happen to use, um, use also, I think, that program as, as a training program. But keeping with getting into the corporate sector, uh, because I think that's really interesting of how to bring your programs to the corporate sector, I want to jump over to um, David, who, um, Really, um, your your mentoring program evolved, um, and where you became a B two B solution for the corporate sector. So, can you talk a little bit about that process of who your constituents were, how, and then how did you make that leap? A couple things. I mean, one, we did not, and it sounds like similar to you guys, we did not set out to have an earned income stream. I mean, I think you've all, a lot of the people in this room 
lived through the 15 years ago, there's always a new panacea, and it's always the for-profit that has the panacea for us because none of us have already discovered it. And that drug 15 years ago was every nonprofit should just start and earn income strategy. <laughs> and and there, are a lot of, there are a lot of gravestones in that graveyard. Um, so we did not think, you know, oh, we'll be great at running a business. What, what happened to us was, um, you know, we're a hard organization to understand, right? I mean, we're a, we're a, net, we're a network field building, movement builder, thought leader for youth mentoring in America. That's not exactly making the heartbeat fast right away. <laughs> um, and so as we had to reinvent ourselves and reinvent our financial proposition, our value proposition to the marketplace, we had to do what I think is one of the hardest things to do in the nonprofit sector, which I think is what's so hard about your jobs, which is we had to figure out, okay, we have stuff to give of value, who will pay for it and how do those things align? Because the weirdness of our sector is that the consumer is not paying us for this coffee and then telling us how they felt about it a lot of times by either not buying it again. And what we found is, you know, for 20 years, we've been awesome at training other nonprofits to start mentoring programs. Um, that's, that's what we're good at. We've been a B2B play. As my board chair likes to say, we are direct service. We're just direct service to other organizations. Mm -hmm. um, but there was this whole other sector of the corporate sector that we had always seen as just, well, they'll sponsor our events and you know they think it's nice that we're mentoring the kids and maybe it will be in, in line with their philanthropic strategies. Well, as we started to listen and as we started to go out into the marketplace and where the necessity comes in is that we were doing this from a point of like, man, who values us in the world mm -hmm. other than the same people that we've been giving away services to for a long time and subsidizing that with philanthropy and the corporate sector started to have an interest in, you know, what is this sort of mentoring? Uh, and how might we have a strategy around mentoring that aligns with the fact that we're not getting employees from the public schools at the rate we'd like? Or all of our accountants are first-gen college goers, so what can we do around producing more first-gen graduates of colleges? Or all of our retention rates at our five guys are three months long. You know, would a mentoring program help with that? So we started, the corporation started having a lot of questions about how mentoring might play into their philanthropic strategies, their workforce strategies, and also they wanted to be as seen as thought leaders because it's not enough to sort of sponsor galas anymore, especially on the national scene. You know, J.P. Morgan Chase wants to come out with a white paper on, you know, uh, finding the greatness within. Right. You were going to ask. I was, yeah. No, I was just going to add that that's very important. That emails that you get with questions, you should pause and think, "Geez, I'm getting this question from a lot of different people. What can I do with this?" Because that typically will lead to some sort of a pain point, right? And then how can we fill that need? Absolutely. So that's important. Yeah, and I'll wrap up because these guys have, have more interesting things to say. But I think over, a, over an odyssey of about a four-year period, um, this evolved for us. And a lot of it was just listening to this coded language that funders and corporations always use, which is like, we don't just want to write a check. We want to be more than that. And, you know, you're kind of like, well, I just want the check. But, <laughs> but they... But they but they, we started to unpack what that meant. And as we unpacked what that meant, there was a consulting business sitting there waiting for us. Yeah. Um, and at first, it was literally like a guy in CSR at Capital One saying, like, dude, you're begging me to get our employees involved in mentoring. 
I think we'd pay you to figure out what the employee volunteerism strategy is. Right. And I was like, is there any way anyone would pay us for that? You know, and then so we invested in having a consultant do mm -hmm. some engagements that were just coming to us. So it wasn't a fixed cost. Then went through like a six month cross-functional strategy to make sure this was mission-based. Now we're still trying to figure out the margins on it to see if they're right. Um, but you know, it, it, what I will say is it's created like this six tentacle relationship with a lot of our corporate partner that has moved a corporation from maybe being a 50,000 funder to a $250,000 funder mm -hmm. because they see us as a solutions provider. Right. And I could have never, like as a fundraiser, no matter how good I was, if I set out to move them from 50 to 250, it would have taken me as many years as it will for you to get all that housing on. So anyway, that's kind of what yeah. our that's okay. kind of what our business looks like. Yeah, that's that's good. Jennifer, um, your story is interesting because you were approached by another organization that needed a CEO succession plan. And that led you to consider a joint venture with hopes of maybe a formal affiliation. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Lessons learned, is it working? Where are you in the process? Is affiliation or potentially merger for some uh, a, a viable solution for succession? So um, we were approached uh, by another nonprofit that was uh, like uh, ours, small affordable housing development. Um, it's based here in Newton, uh, and over that... I don't know if they're here, so... Uh, <laughs> some anyways, of them, some, okay. some, I'm sure you are. I was just uh, hopeful it wasn't my board. <laughs> <laughs> it's not your This board. is the way you were going to find out. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Ta-da! Um, so we spent about a year uh, with the support of a consultant engaged in a, in a series of conversations about, you know, is there mission alignment? Um, what are the sort of due diligence questions that we need to know about each other? Um, understanding each other's financial statements, understanding each other's programs. Um, and at the conclusion of that year, we said, yes, we should, we should, we should join up somehow. And I think, um, um, you mentioned running, somebody mentioned running on passion. I think that in many ways that we were just like, oh yeah, this, this feels good. Let's just keep doing this and see what happens. And now uh, it's been a year since the I do's. And um, it's, been, it's been difficult, I will be honest. It's been difficult because of that real strong desire to do what we felt was right without necessarily really understanding all of the nitty-gritty uh, challenges and implications that arise when two organizations um, with, with long histories and with strong personalities um, and frankly not very sophisticated systems now try to come together. It's like, oh, your, your crappy system is even worse than our crappy system and now we gotta like, pick one, how are we gonna do this? Um, and we didn't, you know, we, we, the consultant was long gone. <laughs> um, so it's so lesson yeah. learned is the devil is in the details and get into the details before deciding to walk down the aisle. 
Definitely, definitely. Okay. There are there. I think the other big lesson for me personally was there were some yellow flags that I just ran on by. Mm -hmm. You know, I did not listen to myself saying, "Wait a second, that is not really what I think should be happening yeah. right now. Let's pause this. Let's kick the let's mm. kick the altar scenario <laughs> down the road six months until we get a better understanding right. of things." with the right attention to the details and upfront planning and thinking through, certainly with the boards, that it could be a viable solution for an organization that needed a succession plan for sure. Um, but th those are great lessons learned, you know, for all of us that, you know, maybe thinking about this, of geez, okay, we've got to step back and really think about the details. So that was really good. Troy, uh, you have um, a beautiful theater, uh, but you had a basement in there that um, was unused. I think the admin staff had some cubes down there or whatever, but you've sort of turned that into uh, top rate, uh, education and a conservatory I mean talk about how you how you got to the point where you thought um, more broadly about expanding education and utilizing your summer months right uh, more productively to earn revenue and what did that look like so education was a part of our mission from the start from more than 10 years ago but uh, the business model of a performing arts center is that you need to maximize every day on that building. It costs a certain amount to run the building and every day that goes by without revenue is a, a loss. So throughout the course of the year, as many days as we can keep events on that stage, uh, the, the better. So summer, however, is a difficult time. Nobody wants to come inside in a theater. Right. If you want to go on barbecue or you go out to the Berkshires or you go to the Cape, it's hard to, to sell tickets to um, indoor cultural entertainment in the summer. So that was an opportunity for us to roll out our first generation education programs. We did mm -hmm. a youth summer program that's not uncommon from what a lot of other arts organizations do. It's a participation-based program. We started with one three-week session and 40 kids. We've now grown uh, to three, four separate sessions, either two or three weeks for three different age ranges of kids. Um, we reach about 160 kids a year. And registration for that program opens in February for a July program, and it fills up for the girls within literally 30 seconds in right. February. The boys take about a week. <laughs> uh, um, but that's so that is a, that's a it it tip of the iceberg is the, is the degree to which we're fulfilling that need we're serving that need right um, so that was the thing I think the first indicator for us that there was a greater need here and so um, knowing that a greater deeper engagement and education of kids in the performing arts was a part of the mission it, it gave us the um, the the courage I guess to take the plunge and buy a building and and develop a conservatory and build a school and mm. take the spaces that our, our offices were and convert those to dance and rehearsal studios and that it's it has paid off our staff m misses very much being in the basement without windows <laughs> yeah but I, I mean I think that that that's I mean even now you're at capacity and so at a point where I know you're um, you're doing the um, the plaza with in collaboration with the city so we talk about uh, you know collaborations with others I think that you know the collaboration with the city 
even though they may not be paying you, <laughs> is important because it comes with intangibles. There's support and, and you're, you're really making an impact in the community, very positive impact. And that might help down the road. Maybe they have some space they can <laughs> renovate for you so you can yeah. expand your education programs. No know. question. We hear all the time, you know, how much money do you get from the city? Really? Yeah. The city doesn't pay you <laughs> yeah. any money? Yeah. Um, and uh, I, what we get is much more valuable than money. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're spending right. $3 million to build a, a, a front porch for us, right. a pedestrian plaza, which will, which people will perceive as being a part of our organization. And, right. and, and the city's putting $11 million into the main street and, and, uh, and the common a block away from us, things that make mm. our neighborhood a more desirable place to visit, to, to right. live, work and play. Awesome. I'm going to jump back to Tim because I know Pine Street Inn is great at collaborating. I, I don't think nonprofit nonprofits collaborate enough with one another, and I'm a firm believer that there's a lot of power in smart collaboration. But one thing that was interesting that you spoke of was how you collaborate with other organizations that allows you to get more of your guests in housing, expand your footprint, but not have significant cost or risk. Sounds too good to be true. <laughs> How do you do it? Um, working with other providers that build the housing. So our community development corporations out there. Frankly, we work with Metro <laughs> West before. Um, and uh, leverage the experience. Many of the CDCs out there um, want to build the housing. Their missions are to provide the affordable housing and though I don't fully understand their operating models, a lot of their operating model is built in, in building that, taking the developer's fee and being able to have that fund many of the other programs that they provide there and all. They're also um, great where they work and really knowing their communities and the people in their communities and, and how to build collaboration in the community around uh, affordable housing, which is not always the biggest seller when we go into a neighborhood um, uh, to build housing. Um, and uh, so they're interested in building the housing and we can actually operate the housing. So we've worked with several CDCs over the, the prior years where they've, they've taken on the um, efforts of um, getting the funding together, building the building, um, um, you know, getting it all specced. We're very involved in that process to make sure we're working uh, the ways that we need to. And then we come in and uh, managing agent, we put the individuals into the housing. Um, we provide the supportive service programs um, and um, all the other things. Um, you know, you talk about, the, uh, so, so that's how we get the units. Mm -hmm. um, um, on the economic model is when you develop affordable housing, uh, there's a program called Low Income Housing Tax Credit Program um, uh, that's uh, a federal program and all. Uh, a key part of it is, is that the, in the investment that goes into this, they wanna make sure the program will work for a very long period of time. So we become better at knowing how to produce economic financial models that will be able to ensure that we can afford the costs uh, um, for that. So on the economic side, now we get units and it's not completely there there are costs that we have to provide that aren't covered but it's at a much reduced cost than if, if um, we we tried to do it all on our own there right yeah no that's great um, this is a question uh, that I think you know you all might weigh in but I'm particularly interested in David and, and Jennifer is just your board's involvement um, so for you 
Getting into the corporate sector is not easy. Did you leverage board relationships? How did that work? Did they support it? Because it's a little bit different than what you were doing. And similar on you, for you, Jennifer, just you know the board's support of you know the process that you went through, and especially now that you've gone through some of these difficulties, and are they coming together really to support you? So why don't you start? Yeah, I mean, I think for us, um, our board is mostly a fundraising and corporate board, I would say. There's a researcher and some that represent the mentoring program community, um, but it's hard because there's some conflict of interest in having like big brother, big sisters, national CEO on our board. So I think, I think the biggest thing for us was managing expectations. I mean, any board is psyched about any alternative to fundraising. So, <laughs> you know, they were like, this is the best strategy ever. I think there's a great marketplace out there for you. Like, our fundraising problems are solved. You know, we're all in the corporate sector. We all need this help. You know, we think there's something really there. And so they were right. I mean, and they can open doors. And many of them are, you know, our, our marquee blueprint sort of thought leadership piece, uh, which is uh, called Mentoring the Business Case, um, was co-branded with Ernst & Young. You know, the global chair for talent from EY is on our board nationally. And so that's a relationship that really helped um, in terms of opening the doors to other companies. But I think for us, it was more to say like, we're not sure this is a great decision. Like, we're gonna go gently. We don't know if there's a marketplace there. Um, this shouldn't make you think we need to take the throttle off of anything else. Like right. this isn't the answer. This is an additive strategy. This is an additional revenue source. And so for us, it's been more about managing the excitement. And I think as a CEO, like, I mean, it's easy in a boardroom to say like, I got the answer. I mean, that's kind of what they're looking to you for. Right. Uh, and so you, it was sort of the antithesis of that. Yeah, it's interesting though, if you're not, I mean, there's, there is learning moments and failing. Um, if you're not failing, you're not taking risk. And if you're not taking risk, you're probably not moving as forward as fast as you could. Yeah. You just have to fail fast. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I think that also, just to speak to the folks in the room and to speak to like my partnership with Beth and some of the things that can't be replaced culturally, like we have the kind of relationship, we can't have the kind of culture on the board where, you know, I'm gonna be an eternal optimist because that's who they expect me to be. But best gonna say like we're still figuring out the margins on this, you know, cop, and like yeah, I mean, and that's just they're used to hearing that and they know it's the truth that we, you know, we we can say we don't have it all figured out, but right. we think there's something there because doing this consulting work for for profits was very different than the economic model for nonprofits, and the more that it's more integrated into all the work we do, right. the more efficient it is. But when you've never charged people for stuff, it's yeah. really different for a business model. But and yeah. I have to imagine Tim and the HandyWorks program. It's probably harder to fail fast when your guests are involved in the mm -hmm. training program. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say we failed it's slowly. A, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's probably a, a more yeah. difficult decision, uh, Jennifer. Yeah. Well, so our um, so we decided our organizational structure would be um, an affiliation, which really uh, I've now come to describe as separate but equal, <laughs> and we know how well that worked out, right? Um, 
So uh, the both boards kind of came and, and they sit together. It's one board that oversees the two organizations, but there's still the, you know, my family does Thanksgiving better than yours. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's, a, it's a real challenge, um, you know, as I, you know, a lot of the literature about um, mergers and that kind of thing talks a lot about these dynamics are very difficult to work through. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, would we have been better off if we had just kind of abandoned both corporate identities and formed a new one? Um, should one have dissolved into the other? Mm -hmm. um, would that have created a better um, kind of sense of, of common purpose? Um, but right now, we're still separate but equal, and the, the boards um, have kind of divided loyalties. Um, mm -hmm. So it's a challenge. Yeah, okay. Thank you all for um, being on the panel. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks, Carl. Yeah. Thanks. Good to meet you.